You're listening to Robert Wright's Non-Zero Podcast. Hi, Anders. Hi, Bob. How are you doing? Oh, very well, thank you. Good. Let me introduce this. I'm Robert Wright, publisher of the Non-Zero Newsletter. This is the Non-Zero Podcast. You are Anders Osland, uh, a well-known economist. Um, and, uh, one thing that's very relevant to the conversation today is that you in the nineties served as, uh, an advisor first to the Russian government and then to the Ukrainian government. Uh, you're author of a lot of books, including most recently Russia's crony capitalism, the path from market economy to kleptocracy. You've served in the Swedish, uh, diplomatic corps. You've been at a lot of think tanks in Washington. Um, And let me tell people the way uh, this conversation uh, took shape. So I did a piece for the Washington Post, uh, an op-ed that was called, uh, let's see, um, it was, uh, what was it called? It was called... uh, Biden can help Zelensky and Ukraine by pushing for peace, published on the 4th of December. Well, thank you. I'm flattered that you've committed it uh, to memory. I'm not sure I should be, though, because what happened was uh, you took sharp exception to it, uh, did a long Twitter thread criticizing it, um, got a lot of attention, but you have a lot of Twitter followers, like 300,000 or something. And I I gather that a number of them feel passionately about the war uh, in Ukraine, as many people do. Uh, I said, do you want to debate this? Uh, I figured it would be faster than replying to everything you said on Twitter. Uh, and you, you, you kindly oblige. So let me start by uh, just quickly saying what my piece was about. Uh, it was, you know, there's been talk about the possibility of the war ending through uh, peace talks and the possibility of the U.S. using its leverage as Ukraine's main arms supplier to kind of push Ukraine toward the peace table. That's often uh, depicted as the U.S., you know, in the name of its own, in pursuing its own interests, pushing Ukraine to do something the Ukraine doesn't consider in its interest. I made the argument that actually a near-term peace uh, could be in Ukraine's interests. Uh, That was a lot of what uh, my argument was about. You wrote uh, in your first tweet, uh, today, uh, the Washington Post has published an article by Robert Wright, Biden can help Zelensky in Ukraine by pushing for peace, which illustratively gets everything wrong. Oh, you're too kind. Anyway, it says, which illustratively gets everything wrong. Let me point out what is wrong. Now, I don't think you meant factual errors. I didn't think, I, I, I think you meant wrong in some deeper and more f- fundamental sense. What, what, it's not the facts, it's the, the logic of the it, argument. It's the logic. So, so what's the main, is it possible to say what the main uh, objection is or what the main objections are? The main objection is that uh, Putin has never uh, stuck to any international agreement that he or Russia uh, have made. So he's not a reliable party. And if one stops uh, uh, so that Putin gets any gain from this war, he will just wait and come back later on. Uh, First, he got Sevastopol uh, from uh, uh, an agreement from 97. Uh, and then he renegotiated that in 2010. Uh, and next, he used uh, the Sevastopol base on Crimea 
in order to take the whole of Crimea. After mm -hmm. that, uh, in 2014, he uh, sent in his special forces in various parts of Ukraine and more or less saw what is happening. And uh, when it didn't work very well, he sent in uh, regular troops and uh, got to uh, uh, a ceasefire agreement that he never stuck to in uh, September 2014. Then he went for another ceasefire agreement after another uh, minor offenses, more or less to straighten out the, the front. And we have uh, Minsk too in February uh, 2015. After that, Putin uh, sits back, mo mobilizes his forces, built up his forces, and then he uh, goes for a full-fledged attack in uh, uh, February 2022, trying to take the whole of Ukraine. So if he gets any benefit now, then he will just wait and take the rest of Ukraine or try to take the rest of Ukraine when he can. Um, before I get into that, let me ask you, uh, how could you be any more certain that he wouldn't attack again if you rolled his troops all the way back to the border? I mean, in other words, you're saying you can just never, you can never rest. There's, there's never going to be a secure agreement with Russia. Uh, there will always be the threat that as soon as they feel they can get away with it, they'll attack Ukraine. So you don't, you don't see any stable agreement ever with Russia? Uh, I think that Putin has to be beaten. And I say intentionally Putin rather than uh, Russia. Uh, Russia in the 1990s was a very different uh, place. So it's uh, Putin who is uh, just like Hitler. He has uh, made his career on his political career on war. The war in uh, Chechnya, the war on the oligarchs was not a real war. The war on uh, Georgia in 2008, the war on Ukraine in 2014, and now he uh, has, uh, started another war uh, in 2022. Okay. He needs in order to uh, 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 justify more repression at home and to get more popularity. Popularity is important uh, uh, for Putin, although it's not the least democratic. Yeah, I know it's important for all leaders. Let, so let me say on the, first of all, the list of agreements, the things you said he violated, there's, of course, disagreement between the two sides over who violated what. I would say the most important of the agreements you mentioned were the Minsk agreements after 2014, which uh, in principle could have avoided war by granting autonomy to two of the uh, oblasts uh, in, the Don, in the Donbass. Um, now, now Russia's uh, claim is that uh, Ukraine failed to deliver on those. And of course, it's true that Ukraine, having agreed to them at the bargaining table, never actually passed them via parliament. And I want to um, say there's something uh, here's something that Jack Matlock, who of course, was a U.S. ambassador to the Soviet Union under, I think, Reagan recently said, quote, war might have been prevented, probably would have been prevented if Ukraine had been willing to abide by the Minsk agreement, recognize the Donbass as an autonomous enemy within Ukraine, avoid NATO military advisors, and pledge not to enter NATO. So at least the opinion of a former U.S. ambassador to Russia is that actually it was Ukraine that failed to deliver on the Minsk agreement. Apparently you have a different view. But I just wanted to establish that the, the, the things you, your, your characterization of who has violated which agreements is not universally accepted. Okay. 
Jack Matlock has been utterly pro-Putin for many years. <laughs> uh, when he was ambassador in Moscow, I worked at the Swedish embassy in Moscow at, uh, at that time, and he did a very good service uh, then. But in recent years, he has been all in favor of uh, Putin and Moscow and all against uh, Ukraine. So he uh, stands out. You can uh, take uh, uh, Alexander uh, uh, power Michael McFall is under the U.S. ambassador to Moscow who take uh, vehemently the opposite uh, position. But uh, the essence of uh, the Minsk agreements was that they were ceasefire agreements, mm-hmm. which Russia never uh, stuck to. They forced Russia to withdraw uh, its heavy arms uh, from uh, uh, occupied uh, Donbass. No, I don't consider this autonomous regions. I consider them uh, regions occupied by Russia because they commanded by Russians and by Russian uh, generals. So uh, Russian occupied territories, uh, I uh, call them. And uh, uh, Russia did not comply with these uh, basic uh, uh, rules. So therefore, uh, why the rest? And then autonomy. Ukraine's far-reaching decentralization essentially complies with the demands for autonomy in uh, of uh, uh, these uh, territories. And uh, Russia is not a democracy. This uh, it's a hard-lined uh, dictatorship. So how can we discuss any elections as the Russians uh, wanted to have on, while they had occupied these territories? Uh, well, let me say on the ceasefire issues, I know there, you know, there, there are. There's the Russian side of the story of that too. I'm not, I'm not an expert. I can't speak to this, uh, but I know there are genuine controversies on the Minsk issue. I know that Matlock is far from the only respected mainstream figure in the U.S. who says that Ukraine failed to deliver on what it had promised at the negotiating table, and a lot of people have said the U.S. failed to push Ukraine toward that. And that, at that point, let, let me ask you though, when you say <clears throat> Matlock. This uh, former ambassador of the U.S. is pro-Putin. Do you mean he's what? He, 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 he's, 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 he's not serving. He was not. He's disloyal. What are you saying? He didn't. He, he favored Russian interests over American interests. What are you saying? He is favoring Russian interests over Ukrainian interests uh, for many years now, as you can see from his uh, public uh, statements, not when he uh, served uh, uh, in Moscow and not when he served in the, the White House. But uh, in recent years, this is a recent development. Um, I don't think that is that interesting that I would check when he changed the view. But it's something like... So you're not not saying he's a disloyal American. You're saying he's not serving Ukrainian interests. It's very common that people who have served in Moscow as a journalist or... uh, the diplomats uh, that they think that uh, Russia has a right to dominate over uh, other the countries. Okay. Now, um, l- let's let's talk about your depiction of Putin as someone who kind of relentlessly uh, invades places. I mean, I, 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 first of all, I take this very seriously. I'm very uh, interested in trying to foster respect for international law. That's why I've complained when the U.S. has violated it by invading countries, as with the Iraq War, and I think most people would say the Kosovo intervention and so on. Uh, but but I, I, I'd like to challenge your view 
that Putin has kind of from the beginning uh, shown this tendency to invade countries. And from the beginning, he's violated agreements with the U.S. And this was just his character all along. Now, it, it seems to me that, uh, I mean, you mentioned Chechnya. Well, of course, Chechnya is part of Russia. And I'm not defending how brutally uh, the, the separatist uh, uprising in Chechnya was suppressed. But that's not violating international law. It's not in the sense of transborder aggression. It's not an invasion. So if you ask when did he first arguably invade a country, that would be Georgia, I think, in, in 2008, the incursion having to do with the, uh, you know, the Russian-speaking part of Georgia the, and so on. So he had been in power for eight years at that point, hadn't invaded any countries. Um, and his, his view, I know, and, and it may not be right, is that the U.S. had, had not done its part uh, in what he had hoped would be a partnership. I mean, for example, in 2000, right after the 9-11 attacks, he calls the Bush administration, says, I'm here to help. And they did, Russia did extend genuine help with Afghanistan and so on. Within a few months, Bush did something that Putin had, had really <laughs> implored him not to do. Bush withdrew from the anti-ballistic missile treaty, something which a lot of mainstream uh, American arms control experts say was stupid, even from America's point of view. But in any event, from Putin's point of view, that's America withdrawing from an agreement it had made. And, and Putin has his whole list of things, including of American violations of international law, including uh, the Iraq invasion in 2003 uh, and so on. And as I'm sure you know, in 2007, he still hasn't invaded any countries. He, he you know, uh, he knows I think at the Munich conference, he delivers a speech about how rampantly the U.S. has violated international law and says, you know, uh, he's clearly a very unhappy camper at that point. Now, that's a critical period because uh, in, in uh, 2008, uh, the issue arose as to whether we should extend to Ukraine a kind of vague promise for eventual NATO membership. Now, you talked about uh, Jack Matlock. I want to ask you about another former U.S. ambassador to Russia, Bill Burns. He was ambassador to Moscow then. And he sent an email to Condoleezza Rice, then the Secretary of State, basically just saying, do not make this mistake. I have talked to everyone in the Russian national security establishment. Well, no, he didn't say everyone. He said, I've talked to people throughout the establishment. This isn't just Putin. All Russian national security elites are dead set against extending NATO membership to Ukraine. It's a red line, don't do it. He then separately sent a memo that got wide distribution in the administration about Ukraine membership in NATO, and it was called Nyet means Nyet. So he was saying, and he, and he specifically predicted, we could have trouble in Eastern Ukraine, uh, we have war, and so on. So, and again, at this point, Putin has not, uh, done the things you're talking about in terms of invading any countries, Bush basically says, look, I know best. He goes on, he, he, he uh, promises uh, membership to Ukraine, uh, which I think kind of drove Putin crazy. In addition, uh, Bush was at that point uh, trying to, uh, I think, recognizing the independence of, of Kosovo, which is highly dubious uh, under international law since our initial uh, for reasons I could get into, if you want, I know you know that you know enough to know that Russia was very upset about 
But let me respond to these uh, okay. points. Uh, the important point here is uh, how Putin's attitude uh, uh, to the, uh, the U.S. Uh, uh, ch- uh, changed. Uh, and uh, basically what you say is uh, uh, correct. I have no quarrel uh, with, uh, with the facts as you presented them. But uh, the interpretation uh, I would present is slightly uh, different. I think that uh, Strzok Talbot put it uh, uh, very well in his uh, Russia memoir uh, book, where he says that uh, Putin wanted to get along with the US, but on his conditions. Mm-hmm. He was not prepared for the democracy thing. It's really democracy that is the serious break. And when Putin really got upset with the US, it was because of the uh, Orange Revolution in Ukraine in late 2004, which he, Putin thinks that everything is organized from Washington. So mm-hmm. the question is only if it's the State Department or CIA that organizes it. It's not if Washington organizes it, which is, of course, completely wrong. And uh, Putin in, uh, was not prepared for what happened in Ukraine, which was fully uh, mm-hmm. democratic. This was a, a, a democratic protest against a stolen election. And his candidate, Viktor Yanukovych, had stolen it. Putin had even gone to Ukraine and campaigned for uh, for uh, Yanukovych in a very uh, expressed uh, fashion. And then what did Putin do afterwards? In 2005, he adopted all these uh, anti-democracy laws, which essentially prohibited uh, NGOs from doing virtually anything and sharply reduce the, the freedom of speech. He has the, this, is, this is in Russia, you mean? In, in Russia in 2005. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So what Putin reacted against was democracy. And the, uh, he was scared by democracy. And then we have his, um, his April 2005 uh, State of the Union uh, speech, where he uh, calls at the end of uh, the Soviet Union, the greatest uh, geopolitical catastrophe of the 20th century. Mm-hmm. I mean, normally one would say uh, Hitler or Holocaust uh, is a major uh, catastrophes of the 20th century, and the breakup of the Soviet Union was one of a uh, nice, peace, largely peaceful uh, events. And then we come uh, to the uh, February 2007 speech in Munich, which right. was a straightforward anti, uh, anti-American. Well, I think, I think he was pointing to things we had genuinely done by way of violating international law and, you know, getting abandoning agreements we had made and so on. I think he had a lot of, there was a lot of factual yeah, correctness in the so. indictment. I don't uh, disagree with that, but basically it was an anti-Western speech. Mm-hmm. And then we come to the uh, to the Bucharest NATO summit in early April 2008. And what was uh, right and wrong with that? I, my view is that any country that wants to uh, join NATO should be allowed to, uh, that qualifies, should be allowed uh, to uh, to apply. And, uh, well, to apply, or we should commit to accept. Let me take it and explain. So, uh, Georgia and Ukraine did apply. The problem was that 
Uh, Bush got this idea very late. He picked it up in early January 2008. And the Germans and the French had been around Washington because they suspected that this would come up and uh, asked in November, December, uh, will this come up? And had been reassured by uh, lots of Bush appointees, no, it will not happen. We guarantee you that. And then all of a sudden, Cheney and Bush, uh, early uh, January 2008, de- decide to change and start a big campaign. And uh, it was too late then. Mm-hmm. It, it was uh, uh, poor uh, policy making uh, from Bush, and therefore it didn't uh, work out. Uh, my view is that they should have been given membership action plans in uh, April 2008. Instead, they get uh, this uh, strange statement that uh, Ukraine and Georgia will become NATO members. But not a word is said about how that should be done. So this is uh, sort of to put them up to be shot, uh, shot at. And in order to show that uh, he didn't understand anything about the diplomacy, Bush immediately afterwards went to see Putin in Sochi, uh, if I remember rightly, 6th, 7th of, uh, of April. And uh, they composed a meaningless uh, 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 communique that Bush saw as his legacy on the policy with Russia. And uh, uh, Putin understood that uh, Bush won't do anything if I uh, uh, start military action. So then he prepared military action to take Tampositsky and Abkhazia, which are not Russian um, ethnic uh, mm-hmm. territories, but have their own minorities with their own mm-hmm. sensitive uh, relations uh, with uh, Georgia. And he's prepared for uh, an attack. Uh, that is Putin-prepared attack on uh, uh, Georgia. Uh, President Mikhail Saakashvili saw this and reacted against right, right. And therefore, the Georgian troops moved first. And then you have two different interpretations. Right. Several Europeans claimed that it was Saakashvili uh, who attacked, while the, the U.S. obviously saw that uh, Russia had prepared uh, a, an attack and Saakashvili perhaps unwisely had uh, uh, countered it uh, right. too early. The U.S. Uh, came in quite heavily in, in support of uh, Saakashvili and managed to convince right. uh, Putin so, uh, so, to stop it. So, yeah, I think that's the, the conventional view of that is Georgia did fire the first shot, technically started the hostilities, but Russia had been interested in kind of, you might say, baiting uh, Georgia into that. They I had a invasion on the way. Yeah, I don't want to get uh, too deeply into how parallel uh, Putin saw that as to what we were doing in Kosovo, but I, I would just say, I would just push to the side, this to the side. I don't want to spend time on it and say that I think if anyone's curious, I can make the argument uh, that uh, the parallels are maybe more striking uh, than people might realize. In any event, that was a real sore spot uh, with, with, with Putin. And uh, together, Kosovo and Georgia hang together. Yeah. And so um, let me ask you a couple of things. So, so just quickly, you, so you think the problem with uh, promising membership to Ukraine wasn't the fact that we did it, but kind of the way we did it. So in other words, you think Bill Burns, then the ambassador to Moscow, now the director of CI, was wrong to say this is just a bad idea flat out. You think he 
like Ambassador Matlock, was wrong. It's more difficult with uh, Burns. You know, uh, ambassadors, by and large, are uh, thinking of the small steps. And the small step here uh, would have uh, been uh, uh, negative for the relationship. But uh, uh, if uh, Ukraine had become a member of NATO and got on a solid track to become a member of NATO, it could not have happened uh, fully because neither Georgia nor Ukraine at the time fulfilled the uh, NATO membership uh, conditions, then I don't think that either of the war, uh, uh, the attacks on uh, Ukraine would have happened. So you are only safe in that part of the world if you belong to NATO. This is the conclusion mm-hmm. that Sweden and Finland have drawn up, and they well, are of course, the alternative view, which was advanced by a lot of people in the 90s when the decision to expand NATO uh, was made, including ranging from George Kennan to, you know, all kinds of uh, noted figures, was that it is the expansion of NATO toward Russia's borders that it will see as threatening, which will make it the case that the only way to be safe is to be in NATO because Russia will. In other words, there's this kind of joke about NATO that it exists to solve problems that it ex- its mission is to solve problems that its existence creates. There was something of that spirit in the argument being made by a lot of mainstream foreign policy figures in the 90s is that if you push it toward Russia's borders, they're going to feel more and more threatened. And yeah, at that point, you may you may feel you need to be part of NATO, but that's not inherently uh, the case. And and I want to I want to ask you a related uh, thing. You, you you I said earlier that let me respond to that. Okay, sure. I, I don't disagree uh, on this. I was pretty agnostic in the nineteen nineties, but uh, the fundamental principle is: if a country wants to apply for membership of NATO and they don't feel safe otherwise then let them in. I think that we should be very happy today that the three Baltic countries um, did manage to become members of uh, NATO, and therefore we have not had any problems on that uh, side. Uh, Norway and previously Turkey always bordered on the the Soviet Union. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, to board uh, to be a, a NATO country and border border on Russia is not uh, a problem. The problem is uh, since uh, Russia became openly revisionist, and we can discuss if it's two thousand five, two thousand seven, or two thousand eight. Yeah. But at that time, the, the answer is clear. And and you know, part of this uh, there being revisionist is. You know, this is grounded in their perception of what's happening. And, and I, you just said they tend to see threats like when uh, there is, you know, in the Orange Revolution and these various revolutions, they see the State Department's hands and U.S. government hands. Uh, and I would say, well, first of all, there, there is some degree of encouragement of these things from the U.S. government. But I'll grant that it's prob- there is also tremendous uh, indigenous energy behind it, you might say. But, but my question to you is, do you think Russia is any more inclined to overread threats than the U.S. was throughout the Cold War? I mean, I could give you tons of examples. We intervened far from our shores, as if as if what happened in uh, you know uh, you know Guatemala or someplace you know was uh, I mean even in the eighties we invaded Grenada, okay? And and, 
I, I, I don't really want to get into no, this. But I want, it's a serious uh, question. Uh, it's a serious question. Do we have the right to ask that Russia, uh, you know, a great power with nuclear weapons that is also a declining power and so may be particularly sensitive psychologically, is it smart of us to expect it to be any less paranoid than we have been? That's my question. I don't put it in those terms. Uh, I think that it's always right to stand up for democracy, uh, freedom and, and uh, human rights. Uh, and that, that's what uh, I'm doing. Uh, and uh, the Russia-Ukraine uh, war as it is now, it's really a, a question. Uh, are you in favor of democracy? Or are you in favor of uh, dictatorship and kleptocracy? That's what we're discussing today. Uh, I want to. Uh, uh, let's get back to that in one minute. One more question, though. Do you doubt that if Mexico said tomorrow, we're entering into a trade partnership with China, and also we have a mutual security pact, and they will be sending weapons uh, and advisors, and maybe troops if we decide, to Mexico, which would be the equivalent of Ukraine joining NATO and the EU, do you doubt for a second that we would exercise whatever force was necessary to keep that from happening? This is no, no uh, topic that I discuss. Uh, I stick to what I know. I know Russia and Ukraine and Eastern Europe uh, uh, very well. And therefore, I have a clear idea of what is the right and the wrong idea. Uh, how to, uh, to predict how uh, odd politicians in, in the U.S., such as uh, Donald Trump, uh, may behave or not behave is really not what I'm focusing on. Okay. I have views on that, but I won't share them. Yeah, but the, 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 uh, so you mentioned democracy. Uh, there's kind of two issues here. Will Putin accept democracy in Ukraine? Will he accept it in Russia? Now, it's, I gather from your earlier recitation of the souring of relations between Russia and the U.S. that part of the problem, you think, is that uh, he wouldn't accept democracy in Russia. That's like a big problem for you, right? Yeah, it's, uh, it's uh, the enemy of uh, democracy and uh, freedom uh, in all its forms. Uh, uh, Russia today has uh, gone back to a uh, Stalinist uh, dictatorship, and I think that is uh, pretty awful. And so do uh, uh, about one third of uh, the Russians who have some uh, view about uh, these matters. So it's a big uh, domestic uh, constituency who's against it. Uh, I'm generally in favor of uh, uh, democracy yeah. and also. This is a massively kleptocratic uh, regime where the, the top people have stolen hundreds of billions mm. of dollars. Russia has not grown since 2014 and hardly at all from 2009. So Putin doesn't care about his people. He just uses it as a cannon fodder. I can see no reason to de defend such a, a country in any regard. Well, you know, I, I suspect he, he cares about his people in, in the sense that a lot of leaders do, which is that he wants them to have uh, enough of a sense of well-being that they don't become a political problem for him and, and that they keep him in power. I think I would say a lot of leaders think that. But, but my main question yeah, is... I wouldn't say that. He just wants to repress them. Russia today is enormously repressive. You would not say that Stalin cared about uh, his people's well-being in any yeah. organizing massive uh, 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 famines within his countries repeatedly. Yeah. Well, I, I, certainly, I certainly don't doubt, uh, I don't deny that he's uh, made Russia more autocratic and authoritarian. The, uh, my question is, uh, 
How large should that consideration loom in our foreign policy? There are lots of countries, including some that are tantamount to allies. I mean, like, like you know, Saudi Arabia, Egypt. There are tons of countries that are uh, as autocratic and authoritarian as Putin. And we just say, look, we just want to get along with you. What you do in your country is your business. And I really think as a practical matter, there's something to be said for that. Now, I don't think we should be giving weapons to these countries as we do. I don't, I don't think we should be subsidizing uh, all yeah, the bad things done inside Saudi Arabia. But my question to you is why, why should we I – mean, I mean, look, it seems to me it, it's challenging enough to manage uh, relations with a declining superpower that has nuclear weapons – uh, and, and just keeping things on an even keel and, and, and keeping Europe stable and peaceful and prosperous and so on without demanding that we, 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 that, that they, uh, overhaul their form of government as much as I disapprove of it. Right. I mean, I just don't, I, I, like a lot of people, I don't agree that we can afford to go around demanding that other countries uh, change the way they the, uh, change their form of government in, in keeping with our ideals. It's just it's just too hard to do all these things. And, and, and it gets in the way of just keeping uh, avoiding wars, for example. I think that one should push as much uh, for a democracy and uh, human rights as uh, one can. And, yeah, as uh, one can, uh, in some sense, we'd agree on that. Has been, uh, to uh, 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 do uh, the two things at the same time. And then the question is, how much can you do? And uh, to my mind, uh, Putin is to the same uh, extent a dead ender as Hitler uh, was. And uh, uh, it was no uh, new point in discussing with uh, uh, Hitler after 1941. And uh, the West uh, didn't do so. And in the same way, I think that we should uh, uh, just uh, wait for Putin to collapse in uh, one way or the other, since it makes no sense to make any agreement with him, since he does, uh, doesn't abide by any agreement. Mm -hmm. uh, we can abstain from uh, that act activity. So the only thing would be uh, what uh, uh, the, the military call uh, to make sure that the troops uh, don't shoot on each other by by accident. That is sort of how much activity one can have with uh, uh, the Russian government. Since um, the Russian uh, diplomats now lie all the time, it's a good saying, don't believe in anything until the Kremlin has denied it. It's a, a ordinary diplomacy makes no sense. Of course, diplomats lie sometimes, but mm -hmm. all the time. This is what the Russians uh, are doing now. So uh, uh, this is an extreme case. Uh, I think that uh, uh, Iran is... Uh, uh, hardly worse than Russia is uh, is today. So Russia has ended up because of Putin in that category, which does not mean that uh, uh, Russia was like that in the 1990s. So therefore, I agree with your um, uh, ambiguous uh, ideas about what policy the West should have had uh, towards Russia in the 1990s. Um, okay, so you, your your view is that now we should you should wait for Putin the regime to collapse, but I gather you want us to abet that process, incur make it more likely that that will happen. So you're you're in favor of in some sense a regime change policy. 
Yeah, I mean, uh, the U.S. Uh, sh- should stop uh, uh, backbinding the hands of the Ukrainians and uh, put uh, as much uh, uh, arms as uh, possible into Ukraine. If you think of it now, the total Western military support for uh, Ukraine, it's uh, $40 billion. The U.S. Uh, aid is half of that. It's right. 10% of the uh, uh, U.S. defense budget. And that has taken out half of, uh, approximately half of Russia's military uh, capacity. No uh, U.S. government expenditure has been more effective than the U.S. military support uh, to Ukraine. So then uh, go further. You give the Ukrainians uh, 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 um, good military airplanes mm-hmm. now, give them uh, tanks um, and uh, really long-distance missiles, and uh, let the Ukrainians attack the Russian bases uh, uh, from which they are being attacked. At Mm -hmm. present, the Ukrainians are not allowed to do so with uh, U.S. weapons. They can do so to a limited extent with their own weapons. Okay, I wonder if you'd actually, in a way, like us to go even further than giving them whatever weapons they want. Here, here's something you tweeted uh, right after the uh, the missile hit Poland. At first, we thought it was Russian. And by the way, I didn't go back and dig this up after our recent encounter. I actually, in the in my newsletter, non-zero newsletter, I had already actually printed this 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 tweet and commented on it. But what you said was, at long last, Russian missiles have hit Poland and killed two Polish citizens. Surprising, it did not happen before, given irresponsible Russian behavior. POTUS, meaning Biden. You have promised to defend every inch of NATO territory. Are you going to bomb Russia now? Then you said a reasonable first NATO step would be to impose a no-fly zone over Ukraine to get rid of all the Russian air attacks on Ukraine. A good second NATO step would be to clean out the Russian Black Sea Fleet, all-out attack on the Navy. Uh, That's my comment. And then you go on to say it is weak and easily harmful, but still uh, block most of Ukrainian, there may be a typo there, Ukrainian shipping in the Black Sea. Uh, then you say, this is time for NATO to prove that it exists. Now, in retrospect, I think you'll agree, you kind of jumped the gun. I mean, it, it turned out it wasn't a Russian missile. And I'm kind of curious as to why you thought, even if it was a Russian missile, missile, it would be intentional, since I don't think Russia wants to get NATO involved. So I wouldn't expect Russia would intentionally uh, uh, strike Poland. But my larger question is, I kind of got the sense from this that that maybe one reason you were so kind of ready to go at this point is that you actually wish NATO would enter the war now. Is that your view? Would you would you just like to see NATO get involved and turn this into a Russia-NATO war? Uh, I find it quite, uh, uh, you have probably heard this, uh, that the West is prepared to, to fight to, to the last Ukrainians. I have. It's, uh, it's uh, uh, not very moral that the West uh, is. Uh, Using the Ukrainians uh, uh, as pawns in this, I would not, I shouldn't say that, but uh, it, it leaves me uh, in a very uh, awkward uh, situation. And uh, I think that the Ukrainians uh, are likely to react against the West. The, uh, later on, we have done it all, and you are not doing more for more for us which is the reason why I want the, the West to do as much as possible. Note that I posed the question uh, that uh, Biden has said this repeatedly, 
that uh, he, he wants to defend every inch of NATO territory uh, as an argument not uh, uh, to, to go in uh, to, to Ukraine. So therefore, mm-hmm. I thought it worth posing the uh, question. Uh, the no-fly zone, I take seriously, but the other was uh, written fast and prestigiously. Uh, uh, you shouldn't take it uh, too seriously, but I'm happy that you do. These, uh, what, the things you said on Twitter, you mean? The, the part about the Black Sea fleet. Uh, that was that, not, you weren't serious? That was like just... A bit fastidiously uh, uh, stated. But um, uh, the point is that uh, Sevastopol sh- should be lost for, for the Russians. Uh, as I said in the beginning, it was Sevastopol that was the basis for uh, the occup- Russian occupation of, uh, of Crimea. Russia had uh, 10,000 mm-hmm. uh, Marines who seized, uh, or special forces that seized uh, Crimea uh, swiftly because they uh, they were mm-hmm. already based in Sevastopol. So therefore, you don't want the Russians to stay in uh, Sevastopol, but it should not be done in that, uh, that, uh, that fashion. Okay, so is it your view that, in fact... Uh as suggested by some things you said about a minute ago, that this is in a way a proxy war between America and Russia, between NATO and Russia. And what we're doing now is using, I, I know you don't want to say we're using them as pawns, but for you to even walk up the line as, of saying that suggests that you do see this as a great power struggle that employs proxies, right? I would put it in a, a different way. The Ukraine is defending the West against Russia. That's how I see it. Which is a uh, quite a different you, you, way. And therefore, since the Ukraine is defending uh, us, or uh, I'm uh, Swedish, I'm uh, see it as a European matter. Therefore, we the West have to be, provide Ukraine with as much equipment as possible. I clearly see that as an advantage so to keep you, the war limited. You really think if Ukraine weren't there to do the fighting, Russia would attack Poland, Germany? Is that what you're saying? I think uh, Moldova and the three Baltic states uh, would come next. Uh, Putin's uh, purpose is not to reestablish the Soviet Union, but uh, to uh, organize wars so that he can repress his country more. Well, he certainly wants to stay in power. And he certainly seems willing to exercise what uh, repression is necessary. I, I, I don't understand how attacking NATO makes him more likely to stay in power by any rational calculation. And I, I, I think I continue to think he's a rational person, however, however bad a person he may be. I think that he intentionally uh, disinforms himself. He be- doesn't believe in public uh, information. He be- uh, believes in his uh, in intelligence services, mm. whatever they lie, and clearly it was uh, a very poorly informed uh, uh, attempt to, to, to seize uh, Kiev. Uh, oh. But I don't, so I think it was poorly informed rather than irrational. Okay, well, I guess I'd say my own view is that in attributing to him the, uh, you know, kind of uh, the, the firm and unchangeable intention to attack NATO, it seems to me you are going as far beyond the actual evidence in seeing sinister motivations in your adversaries as you say he is when he sees, for example, 
the U.S. meddling in Ukraine. And, and I think at some point we should talk about 2014 in Ukraine, but that's just my view. You obviously disagree. You think you see the evidence. That, that would be a whole, a whole additional argument about things he actually has and hasn't said and why he said them. Well, I do read. Uh, I mean, he has denied Ukraine's right to exist. He has uh, openly called for genocide of the Ukrainians. He has uh, accused the Ukrainians of genocide in Donbass, mm-hmm. which is uh, complete nuts. So uh, I read uh, Putin a lot. And I read his uh, uh, his uh, big essay of 5,000 words on the 12th of July as a declaration of war uh, on Ukraine. I said all along that uh, Putin will attack uh, Ukraine, as the U.S. government rightly said from uh, October 2021. I think his intention to invade had, uh, had gotten pretty firm uh, by the summer. I, I don't think, uh, and, and I think plans were in motion. I don't think that means yeah, the negotiations no, no, couldn't have stopped it, but Putin denied it all the time. Well, of course, if you're going to, you know, people who invade countries always deny it until they do it. They don't, they don't, you know, that's sadly, you know, the way these things happen. I mean, if he's going to invade a country, he's going to behave the way leaders behave who invade countries. I'm against the invasion. It was a violation of international law, but I, I don't think. The you U.S. Know, did not deny that it was going to den- uh, invade Afghanistan or that it was going to invade Iraq. The question was uh, r- rather when and uh, uh, not, uh, not if. Those are slightly different uh, kinds of operations, I would say. Um, but and, and, there, and there wasn't kind of a plan of the sort Putin had to basically take them by surprise and do a coup and whatever. But that's another story. I I would just say this doesn't, it doesn't, not announcing an invasion in advance doesn't separate him from the great bulk of, of, of leaders in the history of the world. I'm not, I'm not defending him. I'm just, I'm just, I I guess I'm just wondering to what extent we're justified in putting him in some kind of special category and saying he's not rational. He's not this. um, He's not that. But he lies all the time. So if you want to know what he does, it's better to turn around his faces. I agree, he lies a lot. Um, there's a couple of things I'd like to cover before we go. One is quickly, I, I want to eventually get a little more into my, my uh, Washington Post op-ed and, and another aspect of it. Uh, I mean, so far we've just focused on uh, your, your not thinking uh, Russia can keep an agreement. I want to get back to that, but but first, let's at least touch on 2014. Um, I, I there's a couple of things, I guess. I, I two things, two aspects of 2014. Uh, I'm interested in. Uh, of Putin read that as kind of a Western sponsored uh, coup or a, a Western orchestrated violent revolution. Um, I would say it's not as if he doesn't have. I, I, that's not the way I would characterize it, but I would characterize it as a, as a somewhat violent revolution. And I would say the U.S. Uh, had enough hand, of a hand in things that it's not shocking he read it that way. Of course, it, it begins with the usual thing where uh, National Endowment for Democracy, a U.S. government arm, and the U.S. Embassy are kind of funding things that you know uh, you can see as these very worthwhile civil society projects and so on, but they were 
they were opposed to media outlets and so on, but they were opposed to the pro, well, he's characterized as pro-Russian. Anyway, a somewhat, a somewhat amenable to Russia, president of Ukraine, who had been democratically elected. So Putin, he didn't like them. But, but of course, then beyond that, there's the famous phone call where Victoria Nuland uh, of the U.S. State Department is talking to the, ambas the U.S. ambassador to Ukraine, and they're basically talking about who they want to lead the government after the transition of power that hasn't happened yet. Then the transition of power happens violently in the sense that the president flees for fear of his life when there are armed uh, opponents roaming the streets. You know, it was a somewhat violent revolution, regardless of your view on, on who fired first. Uh, and they are saying, well, let's, I think Yats should be the guy We'll have to go explain this to the other guys who might want the job. We'll get Biden involved. They mentioned Jake Sullivan. Uh, Biden was vice president. Then. And lo and behold, the guy they mentioned is the guy who winds up leading the government afterwards. Now, I'm not saying, I, I never call this a coup myself. It was a, a non-democratic transfer of power that, that involved violence. There was some degree of Western involvement. That's all. I'm going to go so far as to say, uh, my question to you is, is it surprising that any number of people in Putin's shoes would look at all this? And given the, given the fact that he felt he very much had a stake in uh, a deal he had made with that Ukrainian president, and that the successor was going to be very anti-Russian, assuredly, do you think it's surprising that Putin looks at that and says, this is the U.S. meddling in my backyard? They'd never tolerate that if I did it in Mexico or Canada or even Guatemala. I think that this is a completely wrong interpretation of it. Uh, the fundamental thing that uh, changed domestic politics in Ukraine, that's that Yanukovych on the 16th of January 2015 mm -hmm. pushed through the so-called dictatorial laws, which corresponded to Putin's laws on 2005, that closed down all democracy and freedom, and uh, you could get... Uh, uh, several years in prison for uh, uh, all kinds of de democratic uh, uh, acts. And uh, uh, there were two big groups of oligarch uh, uh, deputies in parliament, and they were forced by Yanukovych to uh, approve of these laws, but they were very unhappy. It was only a matter of time when they would rebel against Yanukovych, and they were about 100 members of uh, par uh, parliament. And um, then the big thing that happened was that uh, Yanukovych, or, or the Russians, we don't exactly know, ordered out uh, uh, special forces to shoot uh, 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 protesters, and about 125 people were killed uh, in, in the streets of uh, of uh, uh, Kiev, and the whole uh, thing came to a, a crunch um, uh, 20th uh, uh, of uh, February when the parliament gathered and ousted Yanukovych with two thirds majority. Uh, Putin had then already prepared the takeover of Crimea, which started mm -hmm. according to the medals that the participants had received on the 20th of February. Mm -hmm. Putin, this was uh, just an excuse 
he wanted to uh, to take uh, Crimea, which would be very popular in uh, Russia, and took his popularity rating, according to the Nevada Center, to 88%. So this was the mm-hmm. real aim uh, Putin, uh, Putin uh, had. And then on the 21st of February, Yanukovych uh, flees from uh, from Kiev, and after a, a week, it turns up in Rostov in in uh, uh, Russia. So Putin used this an excuse. The, the Newland Pyatt uh, call you are referring to happened later. It was not uh, uh, before, but after uh, Yanukovych had uh, had been ousted, and it was the Ukrainian Parliament that constituted it, itself, uh, uh, and uh, Alexander Turchinov uh, became the Speaker of uh, uh, Parliament and uh, acting acting uh, President, who came from Julia uh, uh, Timoshenko's uh, 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 party, non-oligarchic uh, 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 party. But uh, it was the two big oligarchs uh, who had been with Yanukovych who uh, changed uh, the, the situation. So this was entirely a domestic uh, uh, drama. Okay, so the, uh, of course, the two sides disagree over who fired first, and I am not an expert, but I'm sure you don't yeah, deny that. that. Yes, it was, uh, it was uh, the Yanukovych people who... Uh, well, I, I mean, I honestly, I've looked into it enough to think that it's not crystal clear to me, but we'll just have to leave it at that. I know the claim on the other side uh, is that, I mean, you don't deny that there were armed militants uh, who are intensely nationalistic, uh, these are the people that Putin calls the neo-Nazis, but whatever. Intensely nationalistic, armed militants who were part of the the the, the what's called the Revolution of Dignity. You don't deny that they were that they were there, right? And they pretty quickly got involved in the shooting. I mean, and I don't know I don't know who fired the first shot, but you don't deny that. The, the first people who were shot were all protesters. Okay, that's what's well. I think what's disputed is whether there was an intentional provocation of the people who did the shooting of the protesters. I believe that's the claim, but I don't know. I, I, I just, I will direct people to Wikipedia and everywhere else. And, and, and uh, I, don't, I, I have not heard that seriously uh, presented in the Ukrainian. Do you, uh, do you think that the U S had in any sense, a policy of uh, wanted to encourage regime change in uh, Ukraine at that point? I, I, I need to to think. I mean, obviously they were in favor of democracy in in Ukraine, and it was democracy that was in danger. Mm-hmm. Uh, Ukraine did have a, a, a democratic uh, a parliament, and Yanukovych never had two thirds majority in mm-hmm. the, uh, the the parliament. He had a majority, but not. Uh, so-called constitutional majority of uh, two-thirds. So this was uh, uh, happy as you go democracy, which was quite unstable. And the question was rather, would uh, democracy uh, persist uh, or not? Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, you said, I, I agree, there was a lot of genuine popular support for the revolution. I assume you'd agree that it was disproportionately representative of kind of Western Ukraine, Kiev, and so on. In Eastern Ukraine, there was a lot of ambivalence about it, especially when after the revolution, parliament immediately passed laws 
that a lot of Easterners felt uh, discriminated against the use of the Russian language and so on. And there's been a certain amount of this. And uh, this law was never confirmed. It, it was it, adopted by Parliament, but not right. uh, signed I, I, in. I know. And I think maybe the uh, Westerners stepped in and kind of pointed out that it wouldn't be about it. But there have been there are anti-Russian language laws that that, that actually are on the books in Ukraine. Uh, let me, and you don't deny that maybe it wasn't handled as, as well as it might have been in terms of, of not making the Easterners, the native Russian speakers, especially feel threatened by the new, uh, the government that had taken power through revolution. Russia has uh, lots of uh, uh, ethnic minorities and uh, probably five million Ukrainians, and it has new Ukrainian schools. Okay. Uh, and just quickly, I wanted to drill down on something. When you said uh, Putin had called for genocide, people define genocide in so many different ways these days. I'm just curious as to which uh, statement of Putin's you're referring to. Yeah, I, I shouldn't say that Putin has not used the word genocide himself, but he has uh, uh, he has called, for example, for uh, for uh, bombing of civilians, terror bombing of civilians. Uh, and uh, of uh, uh, the infrastructure. He said it as late as yesterday in the Kremlin. You can you look mean, it he, up. You mean he said we want to bomb civilians and kill civilian people or civilian infrastructure? He said the civilian infrastructure, but he, uh, he, has, he has made so many statements. I mean... Uh, okay. Just quickly, and this is only at my hand because I, 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 I highlighted in the newsletter. Uh, look, I don't defend any, any of this stuff, including bombing... Uh, infrastructure of Putin's uh, claim is that it's, you know, dual use, that it also has military uses. And I just want to uh, tell you, quote something from a NATO spokesman going back to Kosovo when the U.S. Uh, bombed Serbia, which was a pretty clear uh, violation of international law, big grievance of uh, Russia's anyway. We bombed Serbia's infrastructure and somebody at a press conference asked, press conference asked NATO spokesman about that. And said, "Wait!" They said, "Wait! Seventy percent of uh, of these people are without electricity or water." And the NATO spokesman said, "Yes, I'm afraid electricity also drives command and control systems. If President Milosevic really wants all his population to have water and electricity, all he has to do is accept NATO's five conditions, and we will stop this campaign. But as long as he doesn't do so, we will continue to attack those targets which provide the electricity for his armed forces." If that has civilian consequences, it's for him to deal with. So would you say NATO was guilty of genocide? Yes, sir, I shouldn't use genocide in this context. I'm, a, I'm against terror bombing. Full stop. So you're not saying Putin called for genocide? No, but what he did in his article of the 12th of July last year, he denied that Ukraine is a nation. And he denied all rights of uh, uh, Ukrainians. He did so already mm. in his speech at the, uh, all places, the NATO summit in uh, uh, Bucharest in April uh, 2008. He said so also to uh, uh, to Bush uh, there that the uh, Ukrainians are not the people. And the very title of his uh, uh, July 12 article is. Uh, the unity of the Russian and Ukrainian people. And uh, then we have terror bombed, uh, essentially Russian uh, inhabited uh, areas. I mean, Kharkiv, uh, uh, 
in Kherson are very much uh, Russian-speaking uh, territories of Ukraine. Yeah, I don't want to get too deeply into this, but uh, do you do you know that they were intentionally targeting the civilian targets? Because in a lot of cases, these are cities that are uh, yes, inhabited indeed. by the soldiers they're fighting. And in that sense, we've done, uh, you know, well, I mean, if you go back to World War II, of course, know, if you take but, WHO has something, I think it's the fine. Okay. okay. I mean, I'm not. Establishments that have been yeah. bombed by the Russia. So no. the Russia are doing exactly the same as they did in uh, Syria on the hospitals. Okay. I, I was, you know, uh, I'm, I, I'm not defending anything Russia's doing, beginning with the invasion itself, which is a clear violation of, of uh, international law. I, I, I only ask about your use of the word genocide is because it's very yeah, emotionally charged. People use it very loosely, and then they deploy it rhetorically in a way that almost deprives people of their rational capacity. Once, once you convince them that somebody's committing or favoring genocide, it's like all bets are off. It's like, well, we must do, you know, what you see my, you see my point. Yeah, but you also have this uh, activity that they have deported uh, uh, thousands of children. Uh, Ukrainian children to be adopted by uh, uh, Russian uh, parents to be absorbed into the Russian uh, uh, population. And uh, the Ukrainian number is more than two and a half million Ukrainians that have been deported yeah. uh, to Russia. You can equivalent about uh, how many are uh, voluntary and also what no, to right. And there was a long piece in the New York Times about the adoption story that made it seem more complicated than it's sometimes depicted as being. And you're right, the question of how many of these are involuntary is is not always addressed. But I, I don't, you know, look, the, the whole thing is horrible. I don't deny that. I was just, I just wondered about use of the word genocide. Um, the, uh, so quickly, we've been talking a while and I appreciate your patience. The, um, uh, in the, in the piece, my my argument uh, was that uh, you know, first of all, ending the war now, assuming it's even possible, and of course you you doubt that any deal with Putin is doable, and we can talk about that. But if you just for for purposes of argument assume that a, a deal could happen, uh, my argument was that as it's truly regrettable to ever let anyone who invades a sovereign nation in violation of international law hang on to any of the territory. But uh, there's a real possibility, I think, if the war continues, that A, uh, Russia will ultimately take more territory as, as mobilization proceeds. Uh, there's a possibility that there will be basically a stalemate, in which case just a bunch more Ukrainians will die for no good reason and the borders will never move. And then as if, if, in some sense, the best case happens and Ukraine starts pushing things toward uh, Russia's borders, um, there's the danger that Putin will see this, even if he doesn't see it as an existential threat to Russia, see it as an existential threat to his regime and start engaging in risky behavior that could lead to a wider war, even a nuclear war. And of course, just there's the fact that every day the war goes on, some fluke could happen that, that, that uh, turns it into something more catastrophic. So that's a basic argument. I guess maybe you don't feel a need to address that part of the argument since you don't. Let yeah. me respond. I think that the natural end to this war is that Ukraine takes back all the territory, mm -hmm. uh, including uh, Donbass and Crimea and also Sevastopol uh -huh. to get that cancer out. 
And I think that the natural consequence in Russia then is that uh, Putin somehow loses power. And if Putin loses power, since this is a pure personal authoritarian regime, I think that the regime will collapse. And I think then various ethnic territories of Russia uh, are likely to depart, as uh, Yegor Gadar uh, Uh, predicted in his book, uh, Collapse of uh, Empire, that was published here by Brookings in uh, 2007. Mm -hmm. So I think that we are likely to see a profound collapse of uh, of Russia after this. I would presume that most of Russia, say 80% uh, of the population, will hang uh, 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 together. But uh, Putin has really destroyed uh, his country, and this will have consequences for Russia. Okay, a couple of things, I mean, first of all, it sounds like one version of the scenario you're embracing is Russia dissolves into ethnic civil war. I mean, that's a real possibility then, right? Yeah, this is what happens when you pursue such policy as Putin has. But when when tons tons of people will die who otherwise wouldn't die, and you seem not to be as bothered by that as I am. I'm just analyzing. If you brutalize people as much as Putin has done, then you, they become brutal. But you're encouraging a policy that, by your own account, would lead to tons of these poor, innocent, brutalized people to die in a civil war. We, I'm not saying civil war necessarily. I say that I think that it will is likely to dissolve. We saw that when the Soviet Union dissolved, that it was surprisingly. Uh, peaceful. We can't do know whether it will be uh, bloody or not, but Putin has uh, made all preparations uh, for it to be very, very bloody. But this kind of regime will cause trouble uh, all around otherwise. This is a re- exactly as with Hitler's Nazi regime, this is a regime that needs to go. And you Acknowledge there's a good chance that if it goes the way you want it to, which is via us putting pressure on Putin uh, by supporting uh, Ukraine, Ukrainian, uh, the Ukrainian military effort, well beyond a point uh, where, in my, by my lights, it gets risky uh, in the sense that Putin could use nuclear weapons or something. You not only, you not only I, I guess, minimize the threat of the nuclear thing, you acknowledge that even if that doesn't happen, there's a good chance of a civil war that kills a lot of people, and you're, and you're still in favor of that because you think in some sense it just kind of has to, whatever has to happen has to happen? I was very much in favor of communists falling in the Soviet Union and the dissolution of, of the Soviet Union, and I was uh, very happy to, uh, to see it. I was uh, living and working in Moscow 1987 mm-hmm. and kept... Uh, uh, closely in touch with it be, before and uh, uh, and after, the, and that uh, that attitude was considered uh, to be very dangerous by people like you. Then I am agnostic to what happens inside Russia uh, after Putin has uh, fallen. Uh, we saw in '91 that it was perfectly uh, 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 peaceful. So uh, I have a lot of hope for uh, Russia. What uh, the opinion polls uh, say is one-third liberal Mm -hmm. European-oriented, one-third backward Putinistas, and one-third who are quite agnostic and uh, and political and uh, do not take a a political uh, stand. Mm -hmm. Uh, There's also, I mean, aside from civil war, the question of within Russia, even assuming... uh, 
I mean, I don't know how likely it is that, that Russia would just, uh, you know, that, that all the dissolution into these neat ethnic enclaves would happen peacefully. I think there's basically no chance. When you look at the actual map of ethnicities, you know how these things go. There aren't clean lines. But that aside, that aside, I think there would be this, this bloody civil war. That aside, just, just focusing on the question of regime change within whatever remained of Russia per se, a lot of people think that something at least as bad as Putin would come along. And let's assume that part happens peacefully through a palace coup or something. That might not happen. But if it did, I think a lot of people think that if the, uh, you know, if the cause of the demise of the regime was failing to prosecute this war successfully, there's a good chance that you would have somebody at least as nationalist and authoritarian in the end as Putin. Do you acknowledge that as a real possibility? No, not at all. I think that this is a, a completely flawed thinking. We have seen this repeatedly in Russian history. Uh, uh, Nicholas I uh, uh, started the Crimean War, uh, 1853 to 1856. Mm-hmm. Uh, in came very liberal uh, Tsar Alexander uh, the, the II, uh, the greatest reform period under the, uh, the Tsars. Uh, the Russia-Japanese uh, uh, War, 1904-1905, led uh, to the uh, first election of the State Duma, uh, not uh, fully democratic, of course, but a substantial uh, li- liberalization uh, of the uh, uh, of uh, Russia, and uh, mm. uh, after Stalin, uh, people feared that the uh, Bay Area would take over and it would get uh, even worse. Instead, it was Khrushchev who take over. Uh, after uh, Brezhnev, people were mm. worrying about uh, the hardliners in the wings. Uh, instead, it became uh, Gorbachev and uh, Yeltsin, who le- led to the most uh, liberal period in in Russia ever. So the historical uh, precedent suggests that uh, this is not the risk. And also, if you take it uh, logically, that um, Putin is a real extremist. And uh, we see worse extremists on the Russian television because Putin promotes them. Uh, they mm-hmm. don't have, uh, we know enough about the uh, public opinion to know that these people don't have any uh, popular support. And uh, therefore, it's very unlikely that um, uh, they would happen. And with regard to nuclear arms, uh, Hitler had plenty of chemical arms that he didn't use during World War II. Uh, instead, he uh, committed uh, uh, suicide because he couldn't see that the chemical arms would help him in any way. And uh, I can't see that Putin can benefit from uh, uh, nuclear arms. And uh, like you, mm-hmm. he has some rationality, even if he uh, disinforms himself intentionally. Yeah, well, there is the so-called escalate to de-escalate idea where you use a tactical nuclear weapon to get everybody's attention. And they say, hold on, let's stop this war. And that's what you want, which is okay. I, I mean, <laughs> there are worse things than that if it works, even though people die. But if it doesn't work, you know, you might wind up in a, in a nuclear war. And I mean, I think this is, this is part of Russian yeah, thinking. I'm very afraid of that because the Ukrainians are not afraid of nuclear war. And the 90% of the Ukrainians think they will win. And they are yeah. prepared to do what it takes. So my... His uh, proposal is uh, give the Ukrainians uh, as much arms as possible so that uh, uh, this war can be speeded up. Uh, stalemate is what I'm worried about because that could be uh, 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 the beginning of the next war. 
Yeah, it's true they're optimistic. I, I, I think historically, if you look back, you would have to say that how optimistic a, a people is about their chances of prevailing in a war is not necessarily a good guide. Uh, and, True. you know, but this is driving them now. What's that? True, but it's driving them now. Well, I know. But the question is, I mean, I'm not clear on why we should respect, uh, why we should take that as a good, I mean, especially, you know, as you know, governments always try to control information during wars. Ukraine is doing it uh, pretty effectively. As you know, they've shut down every TV station except one, which has the state narrative. And and they're presenting an optimistic view of things. That's that's what governments do. They're doing it very effectively. I would I just wouldn't accept the prevailing view in Ukraine of how likely success is as a, a good guide to how likely success is. Uh, no, but this is uh, what uh, how the Ukrainians act. Uh, I was in uh, Kiev last in September, and uh, people are adamant. And that's oh, yeah. No, I agree. The, the morale is high and the, uh, the, the intensity of the spirit is admirable. I agree. Uh, so I guess in... Uh, should, should we stop so? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I just want to say one more thing and then give you a chance to reply. Uh, first of all, I admire your optimism about uh, how well regime change uh, would go, leaving aside the civil war question, which you acknowledge is a real possibility. And you're right that uh, the Soviet breakup went in the short term, about as well as could be expected. Uh, in the long run, we wound up with Ukraine, at least, where we are now as a consequence of that. And I just want to be clear on my own view. I have no illusions about how nice a guy Putin is or whatever. And uh, uh, But I do believe that the U.S. has systematically mismanaged its relationship with Russia, beginning with NATO expansion in the 90s, continuing through a number of things Bush did, and and I and I think, for example, that you know, look, uh, Ukraine and the EU was a very delicate situation. I don't believe this is just about NATO. The EU is a very delicate situation. I think there an effort should have been made to make a special arrangement with Ukraine that that gave it benefits of of economic interaction uh, with the EU, but did not threaten uh, its economic engagement with Russia, which of course. Would have happened. I mean, Ukraine, if it had, you know, in in accepting the associate membership, would have been ultimately buying into a situation where the EU gets to decide what its whole tariff structure is with respect to Russia. I think a creative solution should have been sought there. It wasn't. But but the main thing I want to emphasize is I'm not I, I, I I'm not saying as of January it was going to be easy to avoid this war. I think more of an effort should have been made. I think more of an effort should have been made in November, in July, and so on. Uh, I, I agree that as February uh, of this this year approached, it got harder and harder and more challenging uh, to to do the things uh, that Putin wanted that would have avoided the war, especially given the domestic political constraints that uh, Biden faced. But just to be clear in my own view, I think the U.S. has systematically failed to put itself in the shoes of Russia and understand what kinds of policies were going to increase the chances of things like this happening. Lots of people warned us, uh, you know, starting with George Kennan, including Bill Burns. We One consistent thing about our policy is we never listened. We never listened up until February. And I think that's why we are where we are. And now I'll give you a chance to say uh, that I'm wrong. But no, you've already <laughs> said that. You've already said that. So say something else. 
And uh, say that what uh, the, uh, the US should have done uh, is massive uh, uh, armament of Ukraine before February uh, 20, uh, 2022. I think that could have scared uh, Putin off. With regard to the EU, I follow that uh, very closely. Uh, Putin and the Kremlin couldn't care less about uh, the EU until June 2013. Then all of a sudden they got upset about it. They want, uh, like, uh, very much like the US, uh, Russia doesn't understand the European Union, think that it's an old bureaucracy. So uh, why bother about it? Putin and the Kremlin always wanted to have direct links with the big countries in Europe, France and Germany previously, uh, Britain, and tries to avoid the EU. So therefore, no EU policy would have been taken seriously in the Kremlin. And Barroso even had, a, when he was president of the European Commission, was hated by Putin, who wanted to see him as little uh, as possible. So uh, there was no way forward there. Okay, let me just quickly violate my pledge to shut up. Just, <laughs> just say, on the one point of you're saying uh, we should have armed Ukraine more rapidly, well, we were arming them at a certain velocity, and I really believe that, I mean, Putin said that was one reason he was invading. I think he's right. Now, it may be that he was going to invade and invade in any event. And he said, well, if they're going to keep sending weapons in, the sooner the better. But anyway, and I think this is relevant to Taiwan, it's a, it's a double-edged sword to start sending weapons in because if a country is worried about those weapons ultimately leading to a degree of uh, threat or formidability or whatever that's unacceptable, they're going to say, well, let's invade now. So there is that that dilemma. Sure. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you so much, Anders. Thank you. Uh, nice I, I must say, I, I, I enjoy talking to you much more than I enjoy reading your Twitter threads <laughs> about things I write. So, so maybe, okay, you're welcome. maybe we'll talk again. Enjoy this conversation. Okay. Take care. Have a nice weekend. You too. <laughs>